Welcome to Studio Berlin, our current affairs show here on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. As Germany restarts public life, restaurants and cafes are back open here in Berlin in a major step toward pre-pandemic normalcy. Meanwhile, protests against coronavirus-related restrictions, so-called hygiene demonstrations, are still small but nevertheless gaining attention across the country. So for the next half hour, we want to look at what the new normal looks like and who is behind these protests. A note before we get started, I am back at our studio in Steglitz, recording here for the first time since the pandemic sent us into home office, but all of my guests will be joining me by phone, so bear with us if there are any technical difficulties along the way. Joining me now is Per Morling. He is a food and restaurant blogger and creator of Berlin Food Stories. Hi, Per. Hello, how are you doing? Good, thank you. And with us also is Mary Sherpa, a blogger and the creator of Steel in Berlin. Hi, Mary. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So restaurants and cafes have officially been allowed to open since Friday, May 15th. Per, did you have a chance to go out this weekend? I did. I did go out once. Uh, it was more of a random thing. Actually, I wasn't entirely sure how to, to handle the whole new situation. So we ended up going to the uh, the Berlo Brew House, the beer garden in the Gleisdijk for a, a little light lunch. And uh, yeah, it was very good. And did it also feel strange at all? I mean, what kind of restrictions did you have to get used to? It felt surprisingly normal, to be honest. And um, and there, yeah, there were a bunch of uh, restrictions, absolutely. So they did a tremendous job of, you know, kind of adhering to the new guidelines, which, of course, to a certain extent, is up to every restaurateur themselves. So there was no self-service. You had to um, register at the, at the front. You were assigned a table. There was, you know, a lot of space between tables. You had to put down your name on a piece of paper for, you know, for tracing. Uh, you had to wear a mask going into the bathroom. The, a lot of things. And their setup was probably even stricter than, than others. But I felt good about it. It was very, you know, I felt, felt very safe. Yeah, interesting. I, I noticed this weekend, too, that rules can really vary from place to place. I mean, th- there are some rules across the board, like restaurants need to close by 10, no buffets, tables must be spread apart, wait staff must wear masks. But there is that one point that you mentioned that is optional, but it is strongly recommended by the Berlin Senate, and that is putting your name and contact info down on a sheet that gets collected by the restaurant and could be used to identify possible infection chains. So if somebody who is dining at a restaurant the same time as you is later confirmed to have COVID-19, that person can let the restaurant know and the restaurant can then contact you. Mary, what about you? Did you have a chance to go out this weekend? You know what? I didn't plan to, but then ended up eating slash drinking coffee at three different places (laughs) just because um, my walks led me there. It was always outside and it was always at small places and it was never like a full on meal. And yeah, it was very interesting because the weather has been so weird here. It felt almost as if we were now going outside or sitting outside again after a long winter. So not even so much as if we were in quarantine, uh, but more like the whole spring thing has been postponed for like two or three months in the end. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> and it was, it, it was actually nice. Berlin is quite relaxed while taking the necessary measures, I feel. So People are generally very respectful and trying to be mindful of other people's spaces. So 
I enjoyed it. So it seems we all had pretty uh, positive experiences. But with some of these restrictions, for example, that one where you put your name and contact information on that piece of paper, do you think there will be widespread acceptance of that? Or is this something people will really have to adjust to? Well, I didn't do that. Like none of the places I went to did that. And in general, that is also down to this just being a suggestion. It's not a rule. It's not something everyone has to comply with. I wouldn't be adverse to it, but I see how difficult it gets with the German tendency towards really valuing data protection. It's a difficult area to navigate, and we'll have to see how it plays out. And Per, you published some reflections about the pandemic on your blog, Berlin Food Stories, and I want to quote one line. The days of extra cheap and super affordable Berlin were already ending, but this crisis is finally putting those days to the grave. And when it comes to food, that's a good thing. Can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this, I wrote that piece in the height of quarantine, a lot of emotions. But um, <laughs> it's, of course, very much, very much my own opinion. But and my kind of maybe also my hope in a way, you know, it's kind of what the, you know, if you speak about gastronomy also on a global scale, a lot of talk right now is about, you know, speaking about a system that was already broken. And of course, what the pandemic does in every regard of society, it shines light on things that are indeed broken. For the first time in a very long time, customers are seeing the realities of operating a restaurant and how slim margins are, how fast restaurants go out of business, they, you know, once they close and don't have customers. So, that's also, you know, of course, why I wrote that line, because I think in the end, the, especially in Germany and in Berlin, restaurant workers and, you know, I've always been underpaid, margins are extremely slim. We're speaking about, you know, from fine dining, 7 8% to maybe 20% if you're doing a really, really good job. And then you always have to cut corners to make money in hospitality. And so the hope, of course, is that this is a chance for us to do things right and where people are better paid, where, you know, everybody's on the books. And that's kind of the whole thing of it, you know, there are so many people affected by this that you don't even hear about because, you know, in the best case, as a restaurant worker, you are now on Kurzarbeit and you're getting 60 or you know, more percent of your salary. But if you were the, you know, the legally employed dishwasher, uh, you're not getting anything. So, you know, that kind of implies paying the real price of food and, you know, the real price of of labor and so on. Mary, I want to get your take here. Um, What do you think is the real price of food? And do you think that we as customers should expect to be paying more when we go out? I'm not so sure. I mean, I agree the restaurant system and how restaurants are run or how food production is run is broken, to use Pear's words. I'm not so sure this is this can be solved only by raising the price for the customer because these systems are broken whether you are in fine dining and paying 300 euros for a menu or whether you pay, I don't know, 10 euros for a quick dinner at another place. I think it's way more structural and probably also a lot more complicated than to just solve this. What I think this crisis has done is for many business owners, in a way, it was so much more important to look into what the customers really want and need. They really had to switch their business models because they now had to 
look into their neighborhood, look into their direct customers, maybe also their longtime customers, and try to come up with creative ways to sell products that these people would still needing and would still buy. And I think we've seen a lot of very creative solutions for that. This is also something that many of these owners will continue to do because this is not the end of it. Just because you can do table service again doesn't mean that we're now out of the mud and now we're just back into how it was before. You mentioned creative solutions. What are some examples that come to mind? I think for one, Berlin before the corona crisis has been a delivery food wasteland. And many people have tended to look down on delivery food or on produce sales in a way or coming up with products you could just buy for takeaway. And in this department, we've really seen a lot of actually really fun things. Like I'm able to order my favorite ice cream to be delivered from Schöneberg now, or I can get a really good sandwich from a place that usually only does multi-course dining meals. And I really enjoy that, and I hope it gets to stay with us for a little bit. What about you, Per? There's been a tremendous increase in offers from, you know, from what Mary said, from the delivery options to uh, full meals from fine dining restaurants that you can heat at home or even just produce boxes that you then cook yourself at home. I think that's also been another fantastic takeaway is to get a you know, increased access to the you know the restaurant supplies of uh, when it comes when it comes to food things you usually are reserved for for restaurants are you now now make it into my pantry and that's also a tremendous you know way of eating better at home. I think what all these restaurants are realizing now is they will never want to be that vulnerable for a similar thing again, and that you know for many inevitably means being a multifaceted business, you know, like a multi-channel thing. So I think every restaurant that's doing something different now will keep that to a certain capacity, be it a shop, be it selling produce, be it doing delivery or doing cooking classes. And I think you will have to have different sources of income in the future, best case, if you want to be on top of this. Mary, you're the co-founder of a nonprofit in Berlin, the Feminist Food Club, where you've been doing live talks on Instagram with people in gastronomy, including a restaurateur in Shanghai, for, for instance. What are some of the things you've taken away from these conversations or maybe some of the lessons we can learn here in Berlin? Oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> I really started it because um, in the first couple of weeks, I was also in some kind of panic mode and I felt like I needed to kind of transform this panicky energy into something that I thought could be helpful. And so I started with very practice-oriented talks on how to set up delivery or how to do an online shop. And I talked to a couple of business owners from the city, how they are dealing with this, just to get like solutions out there. And then it kind of expanded and I started talking to people from around the world. And then I had this one chance to talk with a restaurateur from Shanghai and we kind of got a look into the future. And that had a lot of learnings for a lot of people because one of her main points was just because you can reopen your door again doesn't mean you're back as it was before. And another really important lesson is that it is time to shift the narrative of how we talk about food. And that plays into how we value food and how we value food production. 
um, that we need to reconsider who is telling stories or who we allow to tell stories and which stories we deem important. Pear, do you have anything you want to add? The one thing which is, you know, for certain is that we don't, we don't know what's going to be in, in six months. You know, it's, it's still in a highly uncharted territories. I went from quite a gloomy point of view in the whole situation to a standing now where I'm actually fairly positive about things. As in, I think if in a place like Berlin, especially, I think a lot of good things can come out of this for people in this world to be better off when they're working, but also for us to eat better food. Well, that is all we have time for. Uh, per Morling is the creator of the blog Berlin Food Stories, and Mary Sherpa is the creator of Steel in Berlin and the co-founder of the Feminist Food Club. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. We are taking a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the so-called hygiene demonstrations across Germany that have been gaining attention these past weekends. Who are these protesters, and what are they asking for? Stay with us. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Oh my God. One thing I really like in a radio story. What's back there? It looks empty. Oh, there's someone living back there. Is a mystery. I'm not going back there. There's somebody's hair. There's a head in there. There's a shrunken head right there. Mysteries explained each week. This American Life. It's Santa Claus. Resident Evil. This American Life. Sundays at 5 p.m. on KCRW Berlin. Hey, you. You've been hearing and reading the news all day. So what are you getting out of it? Are you smarter, more informed, better prepared for your dinner party later tonight? Well, The Takeaway has you covered. We ask the tough questions, we hold lawmakers accountable, and if something just doesn't seem right, we ask, how did we get here? It's The Takeaway with me, Tanzina Vega. Tune in to The Takeaway weeknights at 6 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. We just heard from two food bloggers about how the restaurant scene is changing here in Berlin as we move into the next phase of this pandemic. Now we're shifting to the politics of this next phase. We're talking about the ongoing demonstrations across Germany where people at so-called hygiene demonstrations protest the government's measures to contain the spread of the coronavirus. Joining me now is Melissa Eddy, Berlin correspondent for The New York Times. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Sylvia. Andrea Dernbach, who writes for the daily newspaper Der Tagesspiegel, is also with us. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Sylvia. And Florian Gatman, who writes for the German magazine Der Spiegel and Spiegel Online. Hi, Florian. Hi, Sylvia. So, Melissa, let's start with you. First off, what was this past weekend like for you? I mean, with restaurants and cafes back open again, did you have the sense that it felt pretty much like any spring day? It started to feel more normal, but then every so often you would catch yourself up when you walked somewhere and realized, oh, no, I have to put my mask on before I go inside here. True. And um, Florian, one thing that is starting to become a fixture of the weekend these days are demonstrations and more specifically people protesting COVID-19 measures in Stuttgart in Munich here in Berlin. What do we know about these protests that are happening nationwide? That's a very good question because... um it's such a diverse group of people that is protesting 
right now and, and also the group that was protesting this weekend. So it's really hard to tell who is on the streets. I guess there's a core of right-wing people that have been opposing German politics for quite a while, especially because of the refugee policies. But, you know, it's quite a big group of other people, people who are anti-vaccine, there are people who generally exposing the German political system from both political sides. What we can tell is that there is a movement and we don't know so far you know, about the sustainability and also um, how big it might arrive. And we've heard something similar from Berlin Senator for the Interior, Andreas Geisel, in terms of these protesters are hard to pin down. I mean, one person standing next to the other, they don't necessarily have a whole lot in common. And that is something Geisel wants Berliners to pay attention to. Wenn Sie Kritik haben, wenn Sie Ihre Meinung zu den Eindämmungsverordnungen kritisch vortragen wollen. Ist das so Geisel is saying, if, if you have criticism about the COVID-19 measures, you are of course allowed to express that. Germany is a free land and the right to assemble or the freedom to demonstrate is part of democracy. Aber bitte bedenken Sie, mit wem Sie But he also urges demonstrators to think about whom they are demonstrating with, whose side you're on. Uh, He says, don't let yourself be used by extremists. And he adds, like on Rosa Luxemburg Platz, for example, at these demonstrations, you might be standing shoulder to shoulder with right extremists. So we know the people at these demonstrations can't simply be categorized or put into a box. But Melissa, can we draw any common thread from the protesters that we're seeing? One thing we can draw amongst them is I think they've got nothing else to do. So they're going out protesting. And I think one of the problems we're seeing is unemployment is going up and people are not directly affected by the virus. They are far more open and susceptible to these conspiracy theories that claim it was overblown. And I think the German government really needs to get on its messaging. I think Geisel made an attempt at that, but it needs to be stronger. It also should come from the federal level of looking at trying to reach some of these people and on the one hand express understanding for their frustration and their anger, but on the other hand make clear where these decisions came from. I think they're losing the message and there's a vacuum there and all of these disparate groups are stepping in and the threat of course is like what we saw with Pegida, the the marchers who started demonstrating about six, seven years ago down in, in Dresden. They were upset. They were angry citizens, and a lot of that morphed into uh, support for the AFD. And I think that's the real danger that we're seeing right now, that a lot of the political parties are feeling that these, these groups can morph into actual political threats to the stability that Germany has had throughout this crisis so far. Andrea, what's your take? Much has been said in the past days and weeks, and we do it as well about right-wing people, activists, deliberately occupying the demonstrations and the Nazi interest in it. But I think we should add that there are concerns to be taken uh, seriously, which every Democrat should uh, understand at least. As Christoph Möller put it, a professor of constitutional law at Humboldt University recently in, in an interview with my paper, he said, we are living practically without civil rights. This suspension of civil rights can be regarded as absolutely needed, but um, that's the situation, and I think we should take this seriously. And there are demonstrations, and there are the viewing of the administration for these restrictions to fundamental rights. Andrea, 
What do you think the German government should be doing uh, to show that they are taking this seriously or to acknowledge that it's not just, for example, conspiracy theorists voicing their theories? Well, I think they already took it seriously. You can see it, you can judge it from the the quick loosening of restrictions. I think virologists uh, would have decided uh, the other way around. As Merkel's counselor, Professor Drosten, recently said, loosening the restrictions now is the dance with the tiger. He was okay with that as much as I, I got of it, but he really used the, the metaphor of dancing with the tiger. And politics and the administrations are loosening. They have been less strict as I, for instance, experienced restrictions in Italy or in France. Florian, what are we seeing from the opposition parties in, in Germany's parliament, uh, the Bundestag? Did they, in a sense, lead this charge, or at least some of them? I mean, take, for example, the head of the pro-business uh, Free Democrats, Christian Lindner, who by the end of April was urging the federal government to open all stores regardless of size, or politicians from the uh, far-right Alternative for Germany, AFD party, who have been vocally against many COVID-19 measures throughout this pandemic. Yeah, it's it's a little difficult because you have the SDP and the AfD on the one side who are generally at most criticizing government politics and are favoring, you know, less constraints, whereas the Green Party and the leftist party are pretty quiet on that and are more on the message with the German government. I would add one thing to what uh, Melissa said. I think uh, that was a very good point. I think the German government needs to work on the message, and especially uh, Chancellor Merkel needs to work on the message. And we were hearing last week from you know internal discussions in her party that she was she was willing to do so. She was willing to do something that is not one of her strengths. That is explaining to people why she is doing what she is doing and, you know, trying to reach out. But then she gave a speech in the German Bundestag and she didn't really do that because the problem is it's just not, you know, the style of what Mrs. Merkel's politics are. And I think that is kind of the point where this whole movement is reaching in and and there's really a danger. But for many weeks, we were seeing polls that the trust in Chancellor Angela Merkel was high. The trust in the German government was very high. So is this a reflection on any of that uh, trust slipping? I guess so far we can't really read it in the numbers. The approvals for Mrs. Merkel and also her party, the Conservatives, are still very high. But the whole situation is so vulnerable. And, you know, we don't know what is going to happen within the next weeks, how the uh, economic figures are developing. And, I mean, as Melissa said, uh, a lot of people have nothing to do. But we have soccer games again, so that might make some people happy and give them something to do. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, soccer games. A lot of people have a lot to do, schooling their children at home, (laughs) for instance and doing their homework. That's true, too. But I do think, just building on what Florian had said, that uh, we'll really see in the coming days uh, and weeks, actually, the extent to which this becomes an issue, not only for Chancellor Merkel, but for the CDU in general. Will they go back into looking at who becomes, you know, into these internal fights of who takes over the leadership, and that becomes their focus? 
when they need to also be focusing on some of these larger issues that society is more concerned with at the same time. It is a pressing issue, you know, who, who will be leading the country as at this unbelievably challenging time. So in a way, the dancing with the tiger metaphor, is, it applies not just to the loosening, but also to the ability to deal with this growing unrest and to keep it at a level that acknowledges it, but without letting it sort of control everything that uh, the decision-making process that takes place from here. Melissa, do you think on more of a widespread level even, we are seeing an exhaustion with these measures? Are we seeing waning support and understanding? I mean, I really don't think so, but I'm comparing it sort of to the United States, where also we did see these flare-up of protests, and there was a lot of concern, and I know it's always the stories about the gun-toters that seem to make the German news, but in a lot of other places... People are just trying their best to get on with it. You know, I'm from the Midwest, and everybody's doing parades, drive-by parades to mark every occasion that has otherwise been canceled. So I think it's part of the process, certainly. And uh, the question for me is really just it's going to hinge on the response where this will go. A question for all of you. How do you view the strategy of the German government so far in trying to contain the spread of the coronavirus? Melissa, you brought up earlier that maybe the government needs to be addressing the concerns of protesters in a different way. But during the first phase of this crisis, Germany was pretty widely lauded for achieving some measure of success and especially keeping its death rate low. So where do we go from here? I mean, what needs to be the next step? I certainly don't know what the next step is. I think Germany (laughs) has handled this amazingly well. And part of the reason we're seeing these protests is because there are so many people who feel like this virus was not at all tangible for them. If you talk to anyone in New York, it's almost impossible to reach someone in the city of New York who has not in some way been directly affected by this virus. And Germany is almost right now a victim of, of its own success. And because the numbers were kept so low, they're now seeing this this big pushback. But I think absolutely it's been handled very successfully. But we're now we're facing the really the most challenging part. It was much easier to shut everything down than to figure out how to start it back up. Andrea, what do you think? Well, it's all said already. As numbers are relatively low, something must have worked. Beyond a relatively good and fair health system and less segregated cities in Germany than elsewhere, maybe we were just lucky. We had a much more time than others, than Italy, for instance. And um, on the other hand, we are still in it, and other countries are, and how things are going on, time will show. And Florian, anything to add? The question is, and I'm still a little suspicious whether, I don't know if we can already talk about the second wave, but I think it's kind of a magic that in a such densely populated city like Berlin, uh, with a kind of laziness that <laughs> at least some people in Berlin, you know, show in their daily lives, the situation has been so stable and numbers have been so low. I and agree. I, it's I, completely I, crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's counterintuitive somehow. Absolutely. That's true, and I hope it does stay that way. We hope so, yeah. We, we certainly do hope so. We do. I think the big challenge will be the, the clubs, right? Club life is so much a part of Berlin's identity, right. and it's so clearly such a danger zone for spreading this virus. I have no idea how they're going to square that circle. That's a good point. Well, thank you all so much for joining me. Unfortunately, we are out of time. 
On the phone with me was Melissa Eddy, Berlin correspondent for The New York Times, Andrea Dernbach, who writes for the daily newspaper Der Tagesspiegel, and Florian Gattmann, who writes for the German magazine Der Spiegel and Spiegel Online. Thank you to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in this week to Studio Berlin here on 104.1 FM. Don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at KCRW Berlin. And remember to tune into Studio Berlin next week at the same time. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Have a good week.